Actually, before we begin there, I would like to have us all turn to Luke chapter 15. Keep your finger there in 1 Peter, because we'll be right back there. Luke chapter 15. And let me just give you a quick disclaimer as we begin. This is kind of a heads up. Our study this morning is going to be a little front end heavy. Our first couple of points are going to take the, the uh, majority of our time this morning and then we'll kind of uh, finish up quickly near the end. So just that's my little disclaimer as we begin. Luke chapter 15, we see in this uh, passage where Jesus um, He's with the tax collectors and the Pharisees. He's with the sinners and the scribes, and he's in discussion with them. And it says here in verse 1, Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then he begins to tell them three parables. There's a parable of the lost sheep, and then there's a parable of the lost coin, and then there's the parable of the lost son. And what I want you to notice in this passage, beginning in verse 6, speaking of the lost sheep, it says, When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. In verse 9, the woman with the coin, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I lost. With the lost son, which we know is the prodigal son, it says in verse 22, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this son of mine was dead, and has come to life again. He was lost, and has been found. And they began to be merry. What I notice, and what we notice in this passage, is that in each instance where there was a lost sheep, and a lost coin, and a lost son, when those sheep and those coin that coin and, and that son was found there was great rejoicing we see back in, in verse 7 I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance verse 10 in the same way I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents and so in this passage in, in Luke chapter 15, those three parables, each one, of, each one of them represents salvation. Each represents an item or a person or in the sheep, an animal that was lost and now it's found. So we have a sheep that is found, we have a lost coin that is found, we have a lost son that is found, and each one of those, those pictures a lost soul brought to God, forgiven and blessed. All right, And the common theme here, of course, is joy. And this morning, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 now, the theme of this passage that we're looking at this morning is salvation joy. Salvation joy. Being saved, being born again, being made right with God, as we'll see in this passage, is a cause for joy. On the part of God, on the part of Christ, on the part of the angels, on the part of the church, on the part of the one who is being redeemed. And that's Peter's theme in these verses. Notice in verse 5, he mentions salvation, a a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 9, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. And so salvation is one of the themes of Peter's, or one of the elements of Peter's theme here. And from this text, we learn that joy 
should be our own constant expression in light of eternal salvation. We see this connection between salvation and joy throughout the scriptures. Let me just give you a few references. Back in the Psalms, Psalm 43, verses 3 and 4. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. David in Psalm 5:11 says, "But let all who take refuge in thee be glad; let them ever sing for joy." Psalm 32:11, "Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy all you who are upright in heart." The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 35 verse 10, "And the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion." With everlasting joy upon their heads, they will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And also in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. You remember when the angel appeared to the shepherds, When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, what did the angel announce and proclaim to the shepherds? Luke chapter 2, verse 10, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of what? Of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, a Savior who will bring great joy for all the people. And the Apostle Paul commended the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.6 that they received the gospel with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And later in Philippians chapter 4, he admonishes us to rejoice in the Lord always. So salvation and joy go together. So as Peter wrote to these Christians who were aliens in the world, those who were scattered throughout, as we see in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, He spoke on the subject of joy in the believer because his readers were suffering. They were suffering persecution. They were going through trials. They had trouble in their lives. And they needed to be reminded as we need to be reminded. We need to be encouraged as we face severe persecution or suffering or trials of our great salvation. So Peter, for the first time here in this book, mentions suffering, mentions sorrow, mentions trials so the first time he mentions these things and and that's one of the themes of the book of first peter we're going to look at a few verses i'm not going to read every one because of time but let me just give you a few few references to show you as this unfolds in this book and lord willing through the coming weeks we'll look at these things in more depth first uh, peter chapter 2 verse 12 keep your behavior excellent so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers And so they're being accused of slandering, or they are getting slandered. 1 Peter 2, verse 19 talks about suffering unjustly, as Christ also did. And it says here in in chapter 2 that Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. So as Christ suffered, you will suffer as well. Chapter 3, verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And so the implication here is that evil was being done to these believers, these Christians. They were being insulted as Christians, but they were not to retaliate. They were not to seek revenge. Verse 14 says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Then he goes on to say, it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. 1 Peter chapter 4, since Christ also suffered in the flesh, flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. Chapter 4, verse 12, 12 says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Verse 14 says that they were being reviled for the name of Christ. Verse 16 says that as, 
as they suffer as a Christian, they should not be ashamed, but they should glorify God. Verse 19 says they should suffer according to the will of God by entrusting their souls to a faithful creator and doing what is right. And then finally, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, it says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So all those verses let us know with uncertain terms that there is suffering in the Christian life. Is that news to anybody? Is that a new idea, a new concept? I don't think it is. But during those difficult times, it could easily rob us of our joy. And that's why Peter ties joy into our salvation. He reminds us of the blessedness of knowing that God through Christ has saved us and we should have joy in spite of the suffering, in spite of the trouble that we face. Facing difficulties that, that in no sense should diminish our joy told you this was going to be kind of a big, long introduction, but you're used to long introductions, correct? Okay. Salvation, I, I must also remind us uh, of the joy that we have from our salvation is not temporary. It's not brief or shallow. It's not circumstantial emotion, but rather it's something deep. It's something permanent. It's something profound. And joy is tied to the spiritual blessings of faith, hope, and love that we see in this passage and it's given to us by God through his son by the Holy Spirit so mere happiness comes from what positive external events and circumstances in our lives but salvation joy comes from a deep rooted confidence in the heart that one possesses eternal life from the living God through the crucified and risen Jesus Christ the joy that will be fully realized when we get to heaven. So I must also remind us that joy doesn't come cheaply. It comes at a great expense to God. He lays up the treasure of joy in heaven through the sacrifice of Christ. He provides that joy through our trials by the ministry and the power of the Spirit of God. And so the expense to the Father was given to us in giving us his Son and giving us his Spirit should cause us great joy. All right? Now the question is, how do we experience that joy? How do we keep that joy in the midst of trouble? How do we maintain joy in our lives? How do we remain joyful when our circumstances aren't all what we think they should be or what we would like them to be? How do we remain joyful? Let's face it, most of us are not all the time as joyful as we should be. And I'm guilty of that. It's easy to take our eyes off Christ and look at around us, look at our situation, and lose our joy, right? And so Peter tells us to be joyful here, and he tells the, these believers here in 1 Peter chapter 1 that they greatly rejoice. And so if we're not rejoicing in the Lord, we need to get our joy back. We need to regain a biblical perspective on life in a fallen world. And see that the inner joy that God produces in our hearts as believers rises over life's trials and suffering. So as we look at this, I'm going to borrow uh, the points that uh, John MacArthur gives in his commentary on First Peter. There are five points. And I, I, again, like I said, the first couple we're going we're gonna to spend a lot of time in. And the last three will be a little bit less time. But here are the points. Peter teaches us that salvation joy comes from, number one, confidence in a protected inheritance. I'll go over these again, but that's the first one. We have confidence in a protected inheritance. Number two, confidence in a proven faith. Number three, confidence in a promised honor. Number four, confidence in a personal fellowship with Christ. And then five, confidence in a present deliverance. So let's look at the first one here, and now let's get to our passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. 
that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So he says, in this you greatly rejoice. In what? What's the this? Well, you have to go back to the previous passage that we we looked at last week, verses 3 to 5. Let me remind you of this. Peter writes in verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So in this, verse 6, refers back to this salvation that Peter describes in verses 3 to 5. That protected eternal inheritance. That Greek word for greatly rejoice, it's one word in Greek. It's used 11 times in the New Testament. It's a very intense, a very expressive, a very uh, distinctly Christian term. It's never used in secular Greek. I find that interesting. And it means to be supremely or abundantly happy. It's a happiness that is not tentative. It's not based on circumstances. It's not based on superficial feelings. Peter uses it three times in his first epistle. Here in verse 6, also down in verse 8, and also in chapter 4, verse 13. And Paul, the, the apostle, never uses it in his writings. Jesus used it in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. If you remember, he says in verse 12, or verses 10 to 12, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. He uses two words for joy here. The first one is Cairo, which is the more general term for joy. But then he uses this word that we see here in 1 Peter 1, 6, be glad. The King James translates it, be exceedingly glad. Be abundantly joyful in a deep sense, not in a circumstantial sense. In the New Testament, this word always refers to spiritual rather than temporal or earthly joy. It's always used a joy that comes from a relationship with God, and it is never used for joy found in any other kind of relationship. Further, Peter uses it in the present tense. We are to keep on abundantly rejoicing. Continuous joy, continuous happiness. You could translate this word, you are continually being exceedingly glad. That's a lot all in one Greek word. But that's what Peter says these readers are doing. They're rejoicing in salvation in spite of trial. The unbeliever, of course, does not and cannot know this kind of love. Or this kind of joy, rather. This joy is a persevering joy. It doesn't vanish when trouble comes. 2 Corinthians 6.10 says, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's joy even in the midst of persecution. And so Peter calls for great rejoicing. In what? In our salvation, in our protected inheritance. As we saw last week, uh, Mark Stevenson taught on this passage, and we learned that God has reserved and securely protected an internal, our internal inheritance in heaven. Every believer has this assurance, has this protected inheritance. God, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's a hope that ever lives. That's a hope that we will receive this eternal inheritance. And that inheritance can never perish. 
It can never be defiled. It can never fade away. It's kept. It's guarded in heaven for us. We can never be disqualified from it because we are protected by the power of God through faith. So this is the Christian's great privilege, security, and expectation. All believers have the indwelling Holy Spirit given as a pledge of of that guarantee of our eternal inheritance. We saw that also last week, Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him also, you listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And so we see this great paradox in Scripture Present rejoicing in the midst of grief and sorrow. Here we see that sadness and gladness exist side by side. Question, where are you looking for your joy? I think it's a valid question. Where are you looking for joy? If you're looking for joy in your circumstances, you're not going to find it there. That doesn't last. Circumstances betray us, don't they? But if you know that your joy can be found in your protected inheritance, nothing can touch that. The amazing promise of God to every believer is that we have an eternal, imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance, which is our ultimate glorification when Jesus comes. It's presently reserved for us, securely held for us in heaven until the last time when Jesus returns and we see him face to face. That glorious eternity which God the Father by his great mercy has granted to us through the new birth is the hope that fills our hearts. In this you greatly rejoice. And just as a word of exhortation for all of us, including myself, we need to get our eyes off the world. We need to stop looking for satisfaction and happiness here on earth. It's our eternal glory in heaven that should be our focus. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, if then you've been seat or been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things where? Things above, not on things of the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We have the promise of a full and eternal salvation reserved for us in heaven. And that's a cause for joy, isn't it? You know, as we studied recently in John chapter 16, there was a time when that joy was perhaps elusive. That joy of that protected inheritance. You remember back in John chapter 16 on Sunday mornings, we studied this recently. It says, Jesus says to his disciples, a little while you'll no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Right? Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. So there was this dark hour, the time when Jesus was in the grave, and there was sorrow. But when Jesus raised from the dead, great joy. The disciples saw him, that sorrow was turned into joy because of the promise of life after death was now confirmed in the Son of God because Christ had conquered death. And as we learned from that study, Jesus was also speaking concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so it's the indwelling Spirit of God who produces that joy in our hearts. So our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is generated by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who is the earnest, the guarantee, the down payment, the pledge of our protected inheritance. Our hope for the future is fixed in the past. And so we have great joy because of confidence in a protected inheritance. All right? 
we are quickly running through time. So let's move to our second point. I told you it's going to be front heavy. <clears throat> Number two, not only do we have confidence in a protected inheritance, but we also have confidence in a proven faith. Look at this passage again, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, that is, in our protected inheritance, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter next turns to a source of joy that's, I think, very practical for all of us. Confidence in a proven faith. A proven faith. Rather than allow trials and persecutions to steal their joy and to spoil their, their anticipation of future blessing, genuine believers with a biblical perspective know that such sufferings actually can add to their joy as they experience God's grace and anticipation of that glorious future. It's not only how you view the future, but it's also how we view the present. We can be joyful even though now for a little while. You see the contrast there? There's a future blessing, a future anticipation of joy, but we can have that now even though now for a little while. Joy comes not from the absence of trouble, but through trouble. God brings trials into our lives to prove our faith, to test our faith. God sovereignly ordains our trouble for his glory and also for our good. And here we see Peter gives us four features of this trouble that God uses to prove the believer's faith. Four things. And in fact, just about everything we need to know about trials is found in this one verse. All right, so it's a lot packed in here. So let's look at this brief biblical theology of suffering from verse 6. First, he says that troubles are now for a little while, meaning troubles don't last. Amen to that, right? Troubles are temporary, they're transitory. They are literally for a season, a little while, for a season which means they'll pass away as, as our time on earth passes away quickly. These trials will pass away quickly. Peter, or, I'm sorry, Paul describes them in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with the terms momentary light affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. Trials will go away with this life. Our trials have a limited duration. They're short-lived. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And Peter places our trials in a Christian perspective. Trials don't last. We need to remember that in the midst of trials. This too shall pass, right? Secondly, troubles come if necessary. Verse 6, you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. In other words, there's a purpose for trials in our lives as believers. And what's the purpose? A lot of things. To humble us. To wean us from things of the world. To help us look to heaven. To help us to focus on Christ. To reveal what we really love. To teach us to value God's blessings. To enable us to help others. To develop enduring strength in our character. And sometimes to chasten us for our sin. Troubles, trials serve a purpose. I remind you of Peter writing in 1 Peter 5.10, and after you have suffered for a little while, there's that phrase again, little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God has a purpose in all of our suffering. We need to keep that in our minds. Trials don't last. Trials have a purpose. Third, Peter uses the term, have been distressed, even though for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You've been made sorrowful. This acknowledges that trouble undeniably brings pain. Trouble brings pain. Right? Anyone ever suffer? It hurts. Guess what? It's supposed to hurt. 
tests our faith. It purifies us. It draws us to Christ. It sanctifies us. By God's design, trouble needs to be painful in order to refine us for greater usefulness for him. And so trouble brings pain. And we can't deny that. We can't sugarcoat it. We can't downplay it. We can't have some kind of stoic attitude towards trials in our lives. We can't just go through life with a stiff upper lip and just take it. We need to acknowledge it. There's, there's hurt involved. There's pain. There's sorrow. All right? You've been distressed by various trials. So trials are real. And then fourthly, not only are they short-lived, they don't last. Not only do they serve a purpose, not only are they painful. Fourthly, the Apostle Paul, or Peter says in verse 6, that Christians experience various trials. The term various trials. Many different kinds of trials. Troubles come in many forms. Comes in varying degrees. Comes in varying durations. This is the same word used in James 1, 2, where James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. This word various, it means many-colored, multicolored. It's used one other time in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, describing the diverse grace of God, the manifold grace of God. So just as trouble is diverse, God's sufficient grace is diverse And so God's grace is sufficient for every human trial. There is, I don't know if you'll get this one. I tried to write something fancy here. There is no color of trial that God's grace cannot match in tone, tint, hue, or shade. Any of you who know anything about art know those are terms for color. I don't know anything. I had to look that up for a definition of color. So. But God's grace matches whatever the trial is, whatever color, no matter how long it is, no matter how big, how small, God's grace is able to cover it. It's sufficient. So God sovereignly ordains trials in our lives. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, we can look at Jesus as an example, our great example. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Our suffering is so that we might learn obedience and be more like Christ. I want to read from um, a podcast. Some of you know the Just Thinking podcast. Daryl Harrison in episode 121 titled A Biblical Theology of Suffering. He gives us some hard truths to consider. He says, we may not want to admit this, much of our time in this world is spent living for ourselves and our own self-interests, our own concerns, and our own comforts. We are very selfish and self-focused, and not for what will conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that conformity often involves suffering. And why should it not involve suffering? God's will for every believer is to be like Christ. He goes on to say, everybody wants to see the rainbow, but nobody wants the rain. We think that we don't deserve to suffer. We think that when we suffer, God is robbing us of happiness. And we complain rather than rejoice in the midst of trials. Complaining is an attack on the goodness of God, the wisdom of his plan, and the sovereignty of his rule. Rather than complain and get angry, we need to thank God and rejoice. He concludes by saying that our trials are both providential and profitable. They are, prof- they are providential because God ordains them, and they are profitable because they are for our sanctification. And so 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says that in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of love. We may trust him fully all for us to do. Those who trust him wholly find him wholly true. 
we need to remember that we are not of this world. We are pilgrims. We are strangers. We are aliens. We need to set our affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Things that are heavenly rather than things that are earthly. Things that are eternal rather than things that are temporal. Our salvation is forever. Our trials are but for a little while. So everything we said about trials here, that's how our faith is tested. That's how our faith is proven to be genuine, to be real. Isn't that so encouraging? When we go through trials, it tests our faith. It proves our faith, the genuineness of our faith. Verse 7, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire. By fire. So trouble does not diminish our joy, but it actually produces triumphant joy in the life of the believer. This word for proof describes the whole process of purifying metals. The word is a saying to assay metals. Again, not an area of my expertise by any stretch of the imagination. The assaying process discovers a metal's purity and its uh, genuine content and worth by removing all the impurities by smelting the dross away. Some of you might know about that stuff. I don't. But I can picture it, sort of. Anyways, if you go by, a, by one of these refineries, it, it smells pretty bad, and that's why it's smelt. So. Anyways, I tried. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> no. <laughs> and so, by the way... Um, God tests the believer's faith to reveal its genuineness as well. Job says in Job 23, verse 10, But he, that is God, knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And God doesn't do this because he needs to know whether we really trust him and believe in him. God already knows that. He knows our hearts. But it's so that we can see that our faith is genuine, that it's proven true, that it's real. After all, he's the one who does give us our faith to begin with. And so this phrase, phrase, the proof of your faith, could literally be translated, the tested residue of your faith, what's left after the fire. That's the, that's the faith that comes through, the test. You're proved to be genuine faith tested by trials. As you look through Scripture, you see this often in the lives of God's people. Abraham was put to the test. Joseph was put to the test. The book of Job is a good example, a classic example of someone who went through various trials and passed the test. The many people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 all passed the test of faith. Their test was, was proved to be genuine. So that's a source of joy. Remember in Hebrews chapter 12, verse, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Peter uses the word gold here because that's one of the most valuable metals on earth. I mean, We used to have a gold standard. I don't know if we're on the gold standard anymore in our country. I don't think so. Um, But it's very precious, very highly valued. And just as fire separates gold from the dross, God uses the sufferings and the trials in our lives to separate the true faith from the false faith, the superficial faith or profession. So tested faith, proven faith, it's more precious than gold which is perishable. Even though gold will pass the test of fire, it's still perishable. It doesn't last. It's not eternal, but our faith is. Our proven faith is eternal, so that's why it's more precious than gold. When you go through trials and you come out the other side with a faith that has grown, a faith that's been strengthened, a faith that's been deepened and been proven real, that is a cause of joy. And so we must welcome trials. We must welcome testings. That's why James says, count it all joy. Consider it all joy. 
God's purpose in them is that the proof of our faith may become more precious and more valuable to us than anything on earth. We need to move on here. So we have a hope, and that hope brings joy, and it draws us near to God. This proven faith, this uh, protected inheritance, it all leads to joy. And the third point, verse 7, a confidence and a promised honor. Confidence and a promised honor. And that's the ultimate purpose or aim of this testing, that our genuine faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So uh, Peter's discussion of proven faith in the first part of uh, verse 7 here, it leads to his main point of the verse, namely that believers would rejoice in the prospect of a promised honor. True faith will ultimately come through all of life's troubles and all of life's trials to obtain eternal honor from God. And this is fascinating as we look at this. We give God praise, we give God honor, we give God glory, and he graciously bestows praise and glory and honor on us. It's, it's, it's phenomenal and it's, it's humbling to think about. Not only the joy of proven faith, but a joy of anticipated reward. So the proving of faith is the means to the purpose. The means to the end. The means to the goal. And the goal is praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You remember in Matthew uh, chapter 25, the parable of the talents. Remember Different servants were given a certain number of talents. His master, it says in verse 21, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master, right? The second one, who had two talents, came up and said, Master, you've entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said to him, Same words, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5 says, Therefore don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So true saving faith and and its resultant good works always receives divine commendation. Verse 29 of Romans chapter 2, Paul says that uh, he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that uh, which is from the heart, which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. His praise is from God. And that God would praise saving faith and genuine faithfulness is really amazing. Because we give God praise, we give God glory, we give God honor, and yet he turns around and gives that to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It says in Romans chapter 2 again, God will render to each person according to his deeds. To those believers who are by perseverance and doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So that's the praise. The glory here in, in verse 7, it could be best described as Christ-likeness. The glory that we receive when we become like him because we'll see him as he is. First John chapter 3, verse 2. So we're born again for glory, we're kept for glory, and we're being prepared, being prepared for glory. Then the word honor here, <clears throat> I think it refers to rewards, that God will reward us for faithfulness. We can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Each man's work, um, it says, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. So this threefold commendation, praise, glory, honor, it says that it occurs, the end of verse 7 here, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
when Christ returns. This word revelation is where we get our English word apocalypse. It refers to the second coming of Christ, and particularly when Christ comes and rewards his redeemed people. That's why in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember the parable of the expectant steward in Luke chapter 12. Jesus talked about an eternal reward that we can anticipate. He said, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. So Christ is going to serve and wait on us. That's that's just an amazing thought. He's going to graciously serve us as believers. Praise, glory, and honor. Quickly, let's go on to the fourth point. Fourth and fifth, we have to do this quickly. Number four, we have confidence in a promised or a personal fellowship with Christ. Verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Though you've seen, not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Love and trust go together, don't they, in a relationship. And so in this verse, we see those two things in our relationship and in our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Except for Judas Iscariot, Peter was the one that... Um, probably exhibited the most blatant and the most um, egregious, if you will, breach of faith and trust of all the disciples, didn't he? Peter is the one that Jesus called out and said, oh, you of little faith, when, when he was out on the, on the water of the Sea of Galilee. He was the one that denied Christ three times. He's the one that Jesus confronted and asked, do you love me more than these? And now here we see Peter in great humility. He commends his readers for their love and their trust for Christ and their relationship to him, even though they'd never seen him. Peter had the the privilege of, for three years, being with the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw him. These, These believers never saw him. We've never seen him physically. At least I hope none of you would claim to have seen him in person, right? Our, our faith, our love of Christ is not based on physical sight. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 20. Because you have seen me, to Thomas, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. So, having not seen him is not a spiritual disadvantage to us. Having not seen him, you still love him. Having not seen him yet, you still believe in him. So faith and trust, and that deepens our love, it deepens our fellowship, it deepens our joy. And then this joy, it says at the end of verse 8, is inexpressible. It means it's beyond speech, it's beyond putting into words. Have you ever been so joyful or, or happy about something, you, you, you just can't, get the words out to describe how good it is. You might have talked about a meal you had or something like that or a roller coaster you were on. It was, you can't put it into words. But this joy that we have is indescribable. This word is the only, it's the only time it's used in all of the Bible. And it just means above language, higher than speech. Literally, is higher than speech. It's above speech. It's a God-given joy. It's a joy that you can't put into human words. It's a joy that's obviously produced by the Holy Spirit. And it contradicts the experience of the natural man completely. The world doesn't know it and cannot know it. And it's full of glory, he says here at the end of verse 8. Finally, 
Last point. We have confidence in a protected inheritance. We have confidence in a proven faith. We have confidence in, what's the third one? I have to look at my notes now, see? A promised honor. We have confidence in a personal fellowship with Christ. And finally, we have confidence in a present deliverance. Verse 9, obtaining or receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And here in this verse, because of the present tense form of the verb, obtaining, he's not looking at the future, but he's looking at the here and now. He's looking at the present. You could literally translate this word, presently receiving for yourselves. It's in the middle voice. It means that we are receiving something from the Lord. We're receiving the outcome of our faith. Salvation refers to the believer's constant, present deliverance in this world, particularly as he mentions here in verse 9. Deliverance from the power of sin, deliverance from its guilt, deliverance from its condemnation, deliverance from its distress, deliverance from its ignorance, deliverance from its wrath, deliverance from its hopelessness, deliverance from its dominion. There's a tension here between present and future. Our ultimate salvation is still future, yet we can still experience salvation and experience salvation joy in the present. Again, 1 John chapter 3, we're children of God. It's not yet appeared what we shall be. When we, we know that when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And so our salvation in Scripture is described by three terms, justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is the penalty of sin has been removed. Sanctification, the pollution, the power of sin is being removed presently. Glorification in the future, the very presence of sin will be removed. And so as we finish up this morning, there's no real reason for believers to lose their joy when they can realize all the present and the future spiritual realities mentioned in this passage. A present proven faith, a, a present fellowship with Christ, deliverance, protected future inheritance, and a promised honor. And Jesus told his disciples in John, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So these are the spiritual realities that will joyfully sustain us when we're tested for our faith by various trials. We have a confidence in a promised inheritance. We have confidence in a proven faith. We have confidence in a promised honor. We have confidence in a personal fellowship with Christ. And we have a a confidence and a promised deliverance. These are the truths that should daily remind us as we live in this fallen, sinful world. We're aliens, we're citizens of heaven. This is not our home. Therefore, let's rejoice.